All right, so we'll be in the book of Romans. Make sure to open your Bibles to Romans 14, verse 25. Well, actually, you can use the handout. And so remember there, uh, we'll be continuing off. And today, it's weird. We have two major uh, textual variant issues coming up, one in the reading and one in Romans. So remember that verses 25 to 27 of, of Romans 14, uh, those are in the critical text um, and the Erasmian text, they are placed at the end of chapter 16, but the majority of Greek manuscripts have them at the end of chapter 14, and so uh, that's the, the reading that we understand. We deal with the majority text, and that's uh, how we deal with the textual variants. So that uh, we are continuing in the a section in Romans that deals with the issue of liberty and the law of love. So we have the law of liberty and the law of love. So we need to remember that the Word of God is what gives to us a basis for knowing the difference between right and wrong. And so we are free from the doctrines and commandments of men. So that is how the law of God is a law of liberty. Because if we don't have the law of God, what we're stuck with is the thoughts of men that contradict themselves, the thoughts of society, that the things that are the popular uh, views that exist at a time that contradict themselves across time and across civilizations, or we're stuck with the doctrines of demons or prominent men. We can have the traditions of the church, which also contradict themselves. We can try to consolidate power into a single man and have a pope who will be replaced by other men and will contradict himself. And so what we have instead is we have the word of God, which provides for us a coherent system of truth, an unchanging system of truth from the eternal mind to the eternal God. And so what we have is a coherent system and what we are told is that the things that are changing, we are dealt with uh, in this text. We have the, the Old Covenant believers who are dealing with the old administration. And so the change of ceremonies that occurs is being talked about and the change of the food laws. And so we're told that those were given as a sort of tutor for the people of God and the immaturity of the people of God when they were a national body and not an international body. And so what we dealt with was looking at the change there and the fact that God in his mercy had the ceremonies changed but not the substance of the moral law. And so what there is is a change of ceremonies and those ceremonies are the things that were peculiar to Israel, that were particular to Israel, that differentiated them from the people of the nations. And so what we were given is a clarity about the differentiation between those peoples that that has been eliminated. And so... There is a merciful act of God for a period of time where the people who were raised in the Old Covenant administration were allowed to keep the old holy days and the old food laws, but they were not allowed to impose those upon the believers that were brought in from the nations. And so with the destruction of the temple and the ending of the old system as prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, when there is an end of sacrifice and when the abomination of desolation comes, the temple is destroyed and the old system that was passing away, as it says in Hebrews, then actually does pass away. And so with the destruction of the temple, it is no longer permissible, even for those who are raised out of the Jewish lineage to continue the old covenant administration. And so that law of liberty, we need to realize, is something that also has a category of the weaker brother. And we talked about how the weaker brother is not a brother who imposes superstitions or man-made ceremonies, is not a brother who imposes man-made laws. A weaker brother is a brother who believes something that was taught in the Bible 
and does not understand the way in which it has been expanded on or the way in which it has been renewed in the new covenant. And so the doctrine of the weaker brother does not allow us to have false laws imposed on us, does not allow us to tolerate superstitions in order to deal with the weakness. What it does is it allows us to say, I have a liberty, I have a right, I have the ability to do something or to be free from an old covenant ceremony, and I can bear with your not understanding the additional information for a time. And so those are the the background pieces. We have the eternal truth of the eternal God that frees us from the doctrines and commandments of men. We have the change of ceremony around the time of Christ's work being completed on the cross and the ending of the old ceremonies. And we have the doctrine of the weaker brother and the stronger brother and the duty of the stronger brother to bear with the weak but not to allow superstitions to flourish and not to allow liberty to be suppressed permanently. But for a time, that agreement might come. So please stand again for the reading of the text out of which we'll be preaching. This is God's word. Romans 14, verse 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. To God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples, the weaknesses, of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Does your Bible have, you have Romans 14.25? Yes, so that's, the, that's in the... Uh, 14.25 is, is, the, is the, what the majority text has. It's in the... If you have a New King James there, it's going to be at 16.25. So you'll see a footnote. If you oh. go to that, it will say that the majority text oh, is... Oh, yeah, right. I'm sorry. That's okay. But your Bible should also have a footnote explaining the textual variant there. Okay. All right. All right, so this text, so we look at the, the reviewing of verses 25 to 27. So to him be glory through Jesus Christ forever, amen. This is the general uh, summation of, of those, those verses. So this is a self-interrupting doxology. It calls for the glory to... God, it calls for that glory through Jesus Christ, and then it gives a definition in the middle of those things and restarts um, the doxology. So we talk about God who is able to establish us. He's able to establish us according to the gospel that Paul preaches. He's able to establish us according to the preaching about Jesus Christ. 
He's able to establish us according to the revelation of the mystery, the thing that was hidden, that's been revealed. He's able to establish us according to that which was made manifest in the prophetic scriptures and has now been given to all the nations. He's able to establish us according to the commandment of the everlasting God. For what purpose? For obedience to the faith. He's able to establish us that we might have strength so that we can obey what has been revealed. Now, verse 27 says, To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And we're reminded that God has a knowledge of what is good. Right? What's wisdom? Wisdom is the knowledge of the good and the means to it. And so, what we have is a statement here that God is the only one who knows what is good and the only one who knows how to get what is good. And so we are entirely dependent upon the revelation of God for that knowledge. And apart from revelation, we would have no knowledge. Apart from revelation, we would have no knowledge of what is good or how to get it. And so what we are told then is we are reminded in the middle of this discourse of how to help each other to grow in knowledge, how we're to deal with each other, we're reminded that we have to look to the wisdom of God. And that puts us on guard against pride. That helps us to be ready to be humble, to receive the word, to receive the implanted word, to act on that word, and to not pursue our own preferences. And so immediately into chapter 15, we're told about not seeking our own pleasure. Now, the idea here is not that we will never get pleasure. The idea is this is the way for greater pleasure and longer lasting pleasure. That by seeking our immediate gratification, the result will be strife and toil and death. If we instead seek to please each other for the sake of the obedience to the faith, we will find that the short-term sacrifices lead to a greater pleasure, a more glorious pleasure, a longer lasting pleasure. And so, chapter 15, verse 1, We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the weaknesses. It says scruples. It's more literally weaknesses of the weak. So that's, the rhetoric of that is, is more striking to the ear. Bear with the weaknesses of the weak. What? Why are the weak weak? Because they have weaknesses. So you go, you know, the, the weak people, sure, I can bear with them. I just can't bear with their weaknesses. Well, then you can't bear with them. Bearing with their weaknesses is how you bear with the weak. If they didn't have weaknesses, you wouldn't have anything to be offended about. And you wouldn't have anything to bear with. You bear with their weaknesses. And those weaknesses are weaknesses of what? The faith. They don't believe things they ought to believe. So the strong, if you think of yourself as having more faith, if you think you know more, if you think you know something that the other person doesn't know, then you bear with their ignorance the weakness of their faith, in order to show them the things they ought to believe. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Right, the, the tendency of going, well, I know I'm right. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm just going to go without you. 
down to Gehenna, or up to the throne, he travels the fastest, who travels alone. You're slowing me down? Bye. Now, if you have that general tendency, and you think other people are going to slow you down, and you go by yourself, and you have that idea that you're just, you're just in my way, and you're not bearing with the weak, you think you're wiser than God, and if you think you're wiser than God, you will find you're wrong, rather quickly, rather than longer. And in the finding out that you are wrong, you will find that the weak pass you up. The strong in faith ought to exercise kingliness toward the weaker brother by seeking to carry the burden of the weaknesses of the weak rather than simply seeking to please themselves. So here's what happens. You get into some sort of conflict of doctrine or practice with somebody else in the church, and you go, bah. that's the, I'm not going to bear with your weaknesses, I'm just going to get away from them mentality. The desire to engage on the disagreement and to find a way of doing so profitably and patiently is how we, as a fellowship, can go farther and ultimately faster. The strong must bear with the weaknesses of the weak, rather than simply seeking to please themselves. Do you think that if God, who has given you much faith, sees you not seeking to share that faith with those who are weaker in the faith, do you think that if you fail to share that and help to bear burdens, that he will continue to give you more strength and uphold you in that advance? One of the interesting things about armies, if you look at the history of battles, is that there are typically units that are more elite and units that are less elite. And the danger of elite units is that they might initiate a charge without an order from their commander. And if they initiate a charge without an order, the danger is that other people might think they have missed an order and also variously charged to try to follow. Now, the other danger is that nobody else charges. And the elite unit goes by itself and is slaughtered by itself. And so either one, a badly timed charge initiated by the impetuousness of the stronger unit, or a failure to support that impetuous unit. Either one can lead to the destruction of the whole. If we fail to bear with each other's weaknesses and fail to cooperate together because of our differences in strength, we have nothing to expect except for separation and destruction or ill-timed, quixotic charges. Trying to bear with each other. So what does that look like? Well, verse 2. We should each exercise priestliness in seeking to please our neighbor for the good of our neighbor, for the goal of seeking the edification or building up of our neighbor. The, the verse literally says, 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. We please each other, not just so that we can have good feelings, not just so that fights can be avoided, not just to make it so that no disputes ever occur. The idea is you seek to please each other, you seek to lay down your rights, you seek to carry burdens for the weaker brother in order to come to agreement, in order that edification might come, in order that you can, by avoiding offense, be able to speak into the soul of your neighbor and to have them see an increasing knowledge of the word of God and that you might come to unity. The strong in faith should be quick to take the burden to help the weak along. You think you're right, you think the other person's wrong, you think you're strong, you think they're weak. If you think you're right, be quick to carry the burden of the other to make it easier for them to see what you're saying. If you think you're wrong, why haven't you changed your mind yet? Nobody thinks they're wrong. You always think you're right. So what's Paul doing here? There's a certain degree to which he's telling everybody, you think you're right? Of course you do. Otherwise you wouldn't think it. Therefore, when you think you're right... Carry the other person's burden. So if everybody's trying to persuade the other person and avoid offenses about anything except for the point being argued about, do you see how that encourages coming to unity? Now, again, this does not apply to idolatry or made-up practices. This applies to weakness of faith, a slowness to believe what has been revealed. It does not apply to making up superstitions. Those you plainly rebuke. Now, this is not a doctrine of live and let live. This is live and seek to teach. It's not agreeing to disagree. It's agreeing to keep working through the disagreement until unity arrives. Intentional debate about what the Word of God says is what we're called to. That's what the strength is for. You bear the burden in order that you might build up your brother. And you may find in trying to build up your brother that you are the one who's actually built up. Because as you present your thoughts, right? The, it, presenting your thoughts is in a certain way an act of humility. If you lay bare your case and let the other person respond to it, you have to deal with the criticism of what you've presented. And so I'm sure you've engaged with somebody who all they want to do is to criticize your Christianity but don't want to put forward anything. That is an act of arrogance, where they simply want to judge and never be judged. But if they are willing to both criticize and present and hear criticism, that exchange, that is civil debate. That is a debate that allows for the city of God. That is a debate that allows for the polis. It's polite. It's civil for the civitas. The city can exist when people debate like that. When they don't debate, when instead they simply criticize, simply are cynical, simply say you're wrong, and do not present anything, that destroys relationship. And so the willingness to go back and forth. Verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, Christ, who certainly knew it was right and has a higher authority than us, 
took burdens and did what was pleasing to others and took reproaches belonging to his people on himself. Why did he do that? In order to bring his people to the knowledge of God. In order to save his people from spiritual deadness. In order to save them from ignorance and error that they might have eternal life. He paid for the sins of his people and he also gave an example Right, liberals want to say Jesus' death was an example death. And that's all it was. Sometimes, though, if we simply say, here's the glorious truth of the propitiation. Jesus Christ died and he turned away the wrath of the Father and gave us his favor. If we don't also say that there's an example in Christ, we will fail to see much that has been revealed. And so we must say, yes, the death of Christ is a propitiatory death. It pays for our sins. It removes the wrath of God. It gives us the favor of God. And it also provides us with an example. And so, the big example, Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't possible for Christ to accomplish his mission and for God to be glorified in the earth and for the cup to be passed. And so in order to accomplish the mission, Christ, in his humanity, said, not my will, but yours be done. Well, the will of the eternal God, the second person and the first person, God the Father, God the Son, they're in agreement that this cup should not pass from Christ. But in his human will, Christ desired if I can get the goal and not suffer, let's do that. However, I would rather suffer than not have the goal. And so he gives us that example in his humanity. And in his crucifixion, he takes the reproaches of his people for the good of his people. That is a big example for us. We should be willing to take suffering. You know, when we read 1 Corinthians and it talks about the, the weaker brother there, it talks about the idea of being very careful that if you are dealing with an unbeliever and you're dealing with the believer, you are careful that if you have to offend one, you offend the unbeliever. We often offend the weaker brother for the sake of trying to win the unbeliever, but we're not called to that. You're called to be careful for the weaker brother first. It's sort of like choosing to offend your children or your wife rather than offending some other person outside of the family. You protect your wife and children before you protect that person outside of the family. And the same with weaker brothers. You protect the weaker brother before you protect an unbeliever. And that idea that if you have to choose who to offend, that's who you offend. You offend the person who is the unbeliever for the sake of the conscience of the believer. Now, Christ, when he was asked to pay the temple tax, did he say, yeah, you're right, you know, I owe this? No, he said, hey, who do kings take money from? Their own sons? Or do they take them from people who are not their sons? Oh, people who aren't their sons. They get taxes from them? Okay, but in order to avoid offense, here's the tax for you and me. That's, that's what he said. There was a little example of him taking on reproach and taking burden. He waited for Lazarus to die. Why? He, laid, he waited for Lazarus to die that he could resurrect him and deal with people's weaknesses and 
edify them. You think he's dead and therefore he can't be saved by the miraculous power that's been given to me? No, I can raise him from the dead. And he wept over the unbelief. Why did Jesus eat fish after he was resurrected? Was it because he was hungry? Or was it because he wanted to show them that he had a body? Why did Jesus let Thomas touch his wounds? Was it because he needed some sort of attentive care of a healer? Or was it to help Thomas in his unbelief to be strengthened? These are indignities and burdens that the Lord Jesus Christ bore and did it for our weakness. Christ took burdens and he did what was pleasing to others and took reproaches belonging to his people on himself for the sake of edifying his people. Verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And now I think... You'll understand the verse a little bit better if you replace patience with endurance or perseverance. And the same with the word comfort. Uh, you know, comfort is cum forte, right? It's, it's with cum and forte, strength. Right? But so fortitude it makes it a little bit easier. Comfort, we think of comfort foods or like comfortable chairs. Right? Comfort, you're like lazy boy. Right? That's what you think of when you hear the word comfort. The word comfort in the Bible is never that. The word comfort in the Bible is always talking about the giving of strength. And so fortitude is a good replacement word to better get it. It's got the same root. This idea that we are given endurance and we are given fortitude or strength. Right? The idea of, of endurance you know, being long-lasting, the idea of fortitude having power, having strength, having, having the ability to take beating and to exert strength, What we're told here are the things that were written before were written that we might learn from them. And by learning, we would gain endurance and fortitude from the scriptures. So what grants endurance and fortitude? Learning. Why don't we endure? Because we don't believe the right things. Why don't we have strength to act powerfully? Because we don't believe the right things. Have you ever wavered because you weren't sure that it was worth it? Have you ever failed to act decisively because you weren't sure what to do? Compare that with, I will endure this because I know it's worth it. I will do this because I know it is right. When you are certain about the goal and when you are certain about the means, you are able to powerfully stay and powerfully advance. The scriptures give us knowledge that we might have endurance and that we might have Fortitude. And through the gifts of scripture endurance and scripture fortitude, which are kingliness, we are able to be strengthened in our hope. As we see the work of God helping us to have endurance, as we see God preserve us through trial after trial after trial after trial, you begin to think, maybe he won't let me go. Maybe I won't fall away. Maybe what he says about preserving his saints is actually true. I mean, it's happened to me several times now. So maybe it's true. Amen. 
And then he keeps giving us power to overcome. And in the giving of fortitude, as we keep overcoming enemy after enemy after enemy, after their lines keep breaking, at a certain point, you start to think, possibly, just possibly, he will give us victory. Amen. And the church doesn't shatter. It doesn't shatter. Over and over again, it shatters the enemy. And it's preserved. And in seeing the endurance of the church by the power of God and the fortitude of the church by the power of God, we are encouraged to hope. We don't just have 2,000 years of it. We have 6,000 years of it. From Adam to now, the church has been preserved and the mission of God has been advanced. And so we have hope. We have hope on display and more and more evidence keeps stacking up. The word of God is true and let every man be a liar. We have that. We should believe that. But also there is the building up of the testimony of the church across time. And as that testimony builds up, it encourages. And as our own lives go on, it encourages. And as our lives go on and we see this over and over again, the result is that our hope builds up. We are focused on the goal. The holiness of God, the fact that he will display his glory in the earth, that is built up in us. Verse 5 and 6. Now, may the hope of God, sorry, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have there, this is a summation of the previous verses. These two verses are summarizing what was just said. And it's saying, Now may the God of endurance and fortitude, this kingly God, grant you to be like-minded toward one another. Right? Would you seek to please each other? Would you show the priestliness of caring about relationship, guarding the hedges, and keeping covenant with each other? According to Christ Jesus, according to the, his doctrine and example, that you may with one mind, in other words, with doctrinal unity and thought, which is prophetic gifting, and one mouth, doctrinal unity in word, which is also prophetic gifting, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so in other words, we are asking here, that the kingly God would give us priestly gifting to preserve relationship so that we can have doctrinal unity in thought and word, so that we can effectively fill the earth with the knowledge of God together. The unity of the church in doctrine, through much discussion, through argumentation, through bearing with each other's annoying weaknesses, for that, will fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Now, the doctrinal section. We're given the second commandment, which is the duty to use, go to page three. We're given the second commandment, which is the duty to use the means that God has appointed so that we can know and acknowledge God. Right, the first commandment, we're supposed to know God and we're supposed to acknowledge him. The second commandment, how do we do that? Well, we seek to grow in the knowledge of God, not by looking at dumb images, but by listening to the speaking God and his word. Right? We use the things he's given, not the things we make up. 
We have a duty to use the means that God has appointed to know him and acknowledge him. One of the ways that we're acknowledging God right now is the preaching of the word. What if I replaced the preaching of the word with something else? What if instead I just said, here's a movie clip. If you watch Braveheart enough, you'll know God. God is all wise. We should use the means that God has appointed to grow in the possession of God. We possess God by knowing God. We should seek to grow in the knowledge of God and to share the knowledge of God by the means he's given. That's what the second commandment teaches. To use means that we think are more effective is to seek to serve the God of the Bible in a way that we desire rather than the way that he commands. It is man-centered rather than God-centered. Now, if we apply the means that God has given, we are focusing on God. We are putting God in the proper place as the head rather than the tail. So question 107 of the, of the larger catechism, what is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make unto yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them. You shouldn't serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so let's run through that quickly. Look at the bullet points below. Do not make any graven image of anything that's created. Don't make any likeness of anything that's created. Don't bow down to them. And don't serve them. Okay, so the issue is not, we can't, is not that we can never make an image of anything. The issue is in the context of point three, we can't make anything for the purpose of worship. And one of the things that's inherent in that, and people miss this, they go, okay, I can't make an image in order to worship. So it's okay for me to make an image of God as long as I don't worship it. That's like saying, it's okay for me to worship God as long as I don't worship God. Or it's okay for me to worship this false God as long as I don't worship it. Why? Why are those things equivalent? It's equivalent because when you make an image of a thing, it's a representation. That's the very nature of making an image of a thing. When you make an image of a thing, you're making a representation. So if you make an image of God, you're making a representation of God. And since God does not have a body, that image, that representation of God, with a visible item, is itself a lie. We're told in the scriptures that images are lying images, when they're images of God. Why is that? Because when we communicate about God, when we're trying to give information about God, what did he give us? Did he give us a picture book? I look through my Bible in vain for illustrations. I see illustration Bibles that are created for people, but those images were not given by God. The words were, assuming it's a faithful translation. God didn't give us any pictures in the Bible. If he wanted to, he could. He gave us words. And so what we're supposed to do, the way we get the right picture of God in our head is by having the right collection of propositions. 
the truths. Because God is truth. God is truth. Amen. When you have truth in your head, God is there. What is the indwelling of the Spirit? It's the Spirit giving you knowledge. When you know God, the Spirit is there. When you don't know God, he's not there. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit's omnipresent except in unbelievers? No. God is omnipresent. But how does he manifest his presence in people? By causing them to know the truth. That's the manifestation of God in the mind of a believer. So you don't bow down. You don't worship these images. You don't serve them. And they are all lies. Because making an image involves replacing the true God with the false God by failing to use the means to know him and therefore using the wrong means and therefore getting false knowledge. Images are teachers of lies. God is jealous like a husband toward his wife to keep our communion with him both only toward him, which is what the first commandment is about, and with the right mode. God hates disloyalty and impurity in his worship. He hates both disloyalty and impurity in his worship. God is so serious about this that he brings guilt and curse for idolatry, not just on the generation that performs it, but on the children for the first generation, the second, the third, and even the fourth generation. You want to do something that has effects across generations? You think building some company or becoming really famous or doing something that everybody praises is going to do something that affects the universe, that has some dramatic multi-generational effect. You want to do something that has a multi-generational effect? Worship God rightly and it will bring blessing to the thousandth generation. You can't do anything else that will have that kind of impact. If you want to destroy the future, worship God wrongly and you can make curse that goes across generations. Does that bring to bear the importance of figuring out how it is that we're supposed to worship God? And yet, what is it that we never want to talk about and never spend time on and that there's so little teaching on in the churches how to rightly worship the God of heaven? (coughs) God calls idolatry a hatred of God. He says, You shall not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thousands of them. Who's the them referring to? It's referring to generations. That was the last subject being talked about. God promises to show mercy to the thousandth generation of those that love him and keep his commandments, including the right worship of God. So, what is that right worship? What are the duties? The duties required, page 4, the duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word. Particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. The reading, preaching, and hearing of the word 
the administration and receiving of the sacraments, church government and discipline, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God and vowing unto him, as also the disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it, and all monuments of idolatry. So, let's, let's go through this. Go to point nine on page four. The duties required in the second commandment. We're called to receive the worship that God has commanded. He commands us to do certain things, and we need to believe his commandments that this is how we should worship him. So, finding the things. Now, thankfully, the Westminster Assembly has done an excellent job of pulling together for you proof texts here, and I have included them on the printout. And so, look at them, and you can see, are these the things that God has appointed for his worship? Observing them, not just saying, yes, this is how God commands us to worship him. Let's go to the buffet now. It's saying, God has commanded this. Let's do the thing that he told us to do. Let's observe it. Then we're supposed to keep it. Right? We talk about working and keeping in the garden. Working, adding to the gains already attained. Keeping, preserving the things that have been attained to. Right? So we keep the worship of God pure. We avoid mixing it with any human inventions or demonic lies. And we keep it entire. We don't lose a part of it. Every proposition of truth is precious. And everything that God has told us to do is a precious means. You know, if you take all the commandments of God and put them together, and you remove any one of them, you've lost something that's necessary for your good. Anything that God has instituted that you're not doing is something that you need. You need it. He designed you to need it. And if you're not doing it, then you don't have that thing that's necessary for your good. This is why no magistrate can tell you to stop coming to church. This is why when God institutes a thing, no matter who tells you to not, you do it. Because it's necessary for your good and his glory. So we keep it pure and we keep it entire. We don't lose any bit of it. So religious worship... Religious worship, we have a general obligation to glorify God in all of life, but religious worship is a distinctive and special part of life. All of life is worship in the sense that we're supposed to serve God in all of life, but there's a narrow meaning of worship that has to do with the things by which we commune with God. Driving a car is a good work if you're going to do a good thing, but it's not the appointed worship of God that he requires in set-apart time. Right? If you say, I'm doing my devotions today by driving my car, you are not. You are called to take in the word and to pray and to sing psalms for the praise of God as a special set-apart time. And the assembly of the church is distinctive from the rest of the time when we're still the church, but the assembly is where certain things are to be done. And so those things, those acts of worship that differentiate our ordinary use of time and there's the special use, the holy use of time, in a way, for his worship, that religious worship, the service of God that is to commune with him, the putting of other things in the middle of which would constitute idolatry, that is to be carefully guarded and be kept pure and entire. And the same with his religious ordinances. 
the ceremonies and the order that God gives for the holiness of his people. One of the examples of a ceremony that doesn't necessarily have to occur in public worship, you know, we're, we're told by James that there's the laying on of hands on the sick by elders, the praying and the anointing with oil. It doesn't have to occur in the public assembly, but it's a ceremony. But the laying of hands is a religious ceremony. It points to the idea of, of blessing. Right? The idea of laying hands on is a symbol of blessing. And the lifting up of hands in a doxology is a symbol for that symbol. Right? The, the raising of hands over a congregation is like saying, I am placing my hands on each of you for blessing. But you can do that outside of the public assembly. And the anointing of oil is about strength. So there's blessing and strength. And so when you have a sick person and there's an anointing of oil and there's a laying on of hands, that is about the idea of asking for the blessing and strengthening that comes from God. And it comes with prayer. That's a religious ceremony. And so we have religious ordinances, the ceremonies and the order. The order given by God for the holiness of his people. The ceremonies mark us as different. And the order marks us as different. A part of that order would be not just in the church, but in the home. How is a home to be ordered? Now, this goes into detail now and talks about the religious ordinances and says, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, right? So that's the singing of psalms and, and praying in the name of Christ. The reading and preaching and the hearing of the word. Reading the word is an act of worship. Preaching or teaching out of the word is an act of worship. And hearing it taught is an act of worship. And you know what you're called to do in 1 Corinthians when you hear the word preached? Your job is to judge it. Acts tells you you're to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Your job is to judge. Whoever is teaching, their job is to teach the truth. And if you're listening, it's your job to judge. And so we have the question and answer period at the end, right, for the purpose of being able to express negative judgment and to ask for clarification. The administration and receiving of the sacraments. There's an act of worship in the breaking of the bread, and the pouring of the wine, the pouring of the water, and also the receiving of it. If you're the one who's the recipient of the water, or the bread, or the wine, right? these, are, these are acts of worship in the giving and the receiving. And the same is true with the word. And it's interesting, because these visible elements, they are symbols of the nourishment that comes by the word. Those would obviously be gross idolatry if God hadn't commanded them. Right? The bread and wine are supposed to be images of Christ. Jesus didn't give us a little picture with unreasonably white skin and unmanly long hair. He didn't give us that. He gave us bread and wine. Not Hand model Jesus. <laughs> Give us bread and wine. The administration and receiving of the sacraments are pictures from God. And those are the only ones we're allowed to use to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Church government and discipline are a part of the religious order given to us by God. Wrong government is idolatry. And wrong order is is idolatry. If we discipline too much or discipline too little, it's a type of idolatry. 
hindering people from coming to Christ who ought not to come, or who, who ought to be allowed to come, or you're letting people in who ought not be allowed to because of the fact that they have not made a credible profession. You let them come to the table wrongly. And so the importance of considering who should be given baptism. Right? We have the question of who should be admitted into the visible church. The ministry and the maintenance of the ministry. Right? This is having the offices and having the service that those offices provide and seeing them maintained, giving them equipment and the blessing of remuneration for work. These are acts of the religious ordinances that God has given. These are all things that are appropriate to be done on the Lord's Day. This is what the Lord's Day is for. There's a lot of stuff to do there, and if you think, you know, I have way too much time to do those things. I don't need the Sabbath. Then you think you're wiser than God, because he gave us one day out of seven for those things. For those things. Religious fasting. The, the other things that we just listed, these are, the, these are the ordinary acts of worship. They occur on an ongoing basis. They're, they're regular. The other things have to do with particular events that come up. Religious fasting and swearing by the name of God and vowing unto him. You use covenanting and you use fasting based upon particular occasions that occur. Things that come up in time. And so those are not ordinary. They are used in extraordinary ways. Now, point 13. We're required to disapprove of false worship, to detest it. Right? If you, if you, if you think that false worship is not such a big thing and you're not that bothered by it, that's a wrong affection in your soul. You are required to hate false worship, to detest it. And you're required to oppose all false worship. Do not ever give approval to false worship. Well, it seems nice. It seems pleasant. It seems sincere. But you don't give approval to false worship. And according to your place and calling, it's your duty to remove false worship and to remove <coughs> monuments of idolatry. If you have any monument of idolatry that is under your authority and you have not destroyed it, when you go home, destroy it. What's a monument to idolatry? A monument to idolatry is a symbol or marker or emblem of any false god or false honoring of the true or any false god. A symbol of the false honoring of the true god, a symbol of the false honoring of a false god, or a symbol of a false god. Those are monuments of idolatry that it's your job to pull down. You chop down the Asheroth poles. You destroy the high places. You remove that filth that clutters the temple of God. It is your job to tear them down. And you know, sometimes you'll have monuments of idolatry in your own mind, false doctrines that you believe that make it so that your view of God is wrong. Those things all need to be torn down. 
And so you ask yourself, do I have authority here? If you're an individual, you certainly have control over your own body and over your own thoughts. And so any monuments to idolatry that you have, remove them. If it's your property, destroy that. If it is in the household and you're a head of house or a mother and you are there in the home, you have authority and you should remove those monuments of idolatry based upon your office and not allow others to keep monuments of idolatry in your home. If you are an officer in the church or a voting member of a church, it's your job to vote to remove stuff and to refuse to participate in things that are idolatrous. And if you are an officer of the state, it is your job to tear down the monuments of idolatry in the land. Those are the different callings. And so, we'll pick up next time on the things that are forbidden in the second commandment. But those are the positive duties. And we've seen that God cares about his worship. And that there are effects that cross generations when you apply what God has commanded or failed to do so. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching, Elder Reese. On the, on the second commandment, where we're commanded to not make any graven image of anything created or um, any likeness of anything created, that's in the context of, of worship, correct? The second commandment isn't forbidding us from drawing a picture of something artistic-wise <coughs> or non-worship purpose. Right, so two ways of making a graven image that is forbidden here. One making a graven image that is supposed to represent God. Two, making an image that is for the purpose of religious service. Right? So it could be an image claiming it's of the true God or of a false God or an image that you're using for some sort of religious purpose. So for example, there are some PC USA churches that replaced the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, with milk and honey. Those symbols, although found in the Bible, right, milk and honey represent prosperity, using them in a religious ceremony, that's not appointed by God, and it is idolatry. <coughs> and so, the use of images only in the way that God is appointed, and never making images to represent God, unless he told us to do it, like with the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? Because those represent the, the person and work of Christ. Okay, does that clarify? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. Mr. Price. Uh, questions on the uh, idols, and I would say a uh, question more pertaining to kind of like pipe, uh, pop icons, TV, things like that. Uh, a good example would be like uh, HP Lovecraft's book. So the question is, in, in, in pieces of culture, if there's a reference to a false god, is that sin? So I think if you create a piece of culture that in some way honors or magnifies or displays in a positive way a false god, that is sin. I think if you 
create a representation of a false god for the purpose of criticism, for satire, for tearing it down, that is not sin. We see the, the Bible itself references false gods and talks about them, but the importance is how that's, that's done. Um, there are all sorts of Christian fiction that put words into the mouth of God or into the mouth of Jesus. Sometimes they claim to be not fiction. That is idolatry. And so we should be very careful about representations of the true God and representations of false gods in culture. If you are engaging with that culture, you have to be very careful and discerning. Just like you would with any, any piece of culture, you need to judge it. And so kind of the, the mindless consuming of stuff to veg out is sin. Right? We have an obligation when we're dealing with pieces of culture that have, you know, they're going to have falsehood in it and we need to judge them. And that analysis and the arguing with it is how you profitably engage with culture. And sometimes you'll start to find it unprofitable because you're like, I'm just attacking the same thing over and over again. And you'll get disgusted with the thing. And the temptation then is to go, well, I just want to have something to watch, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> and if you find it unprofitable, then you should not just stop judging it. You should stop watching it. And so does that answer the... Okay, very good. Okay, then let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your second commandment that we might know what are the things that you have given to us for your worship so that we can have them pure and entire. We ask that you would help us to worship you properly and you would help us to benefit from the worship that you've instituted. Father, I ask that you would cause the word preached to be effectual for the building up and edifying of souls, transforming them after the image of Christ. For your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.